Welcome to the Leadership Window Podcast with Dr. Patrick Jinks. Each week through a social sector lens, Patrick interviews leaders and experts and puts us in touch with trends and tips for leading effectively. Patrick is a board-certified executive coach, a member of the Forbes Coaches Council, a best-selling author, award-winning photographer, and a professional speaker. And now, here's Dr. Patrick Jinks. Hello, everyone. This is episode 102. We're in the, we're in the century land now. And uh, operating under a new brand, if you haven't heard, the Jinx Perspective is now the Leader's Perspective. And uh, go back to episode 100 and hear all about that if you missed that and what that was all about. But now we're cruising into our next chapter and work and just leveling up. And our guest today is going to, you're going to love this, if you are a nonprofit leader or even on the board of a nonprofit you're going to love this content and you're going to want to bookmark it and share it with all your colleagues because in my coaching world, this may be the biggest challenge. It is certainly in the top three biggest challenge that nonprofits face. And that is how do we raise money? How do we figure out this fundraising puzzle and all the challenges of finding good development people and getting our board involved and really inspiring the community and planning for it and how it aligns with everything. And it's just a really, really tough environment. And so uh, we're bringing on, uh, I'm just going to say, we're, we're bringing on an expert in that field and uh, someone who has not only just the um, the philosophical or academic or practical frameworks, but a deep level of experience. This is, uh, we've got Darian Rodriguez Heyman on the show. He is, um, his work is helping people help. He has, uh, led the Craigslist foundation, um, where he founded their hugely popular nonprofit boot camp. Grew it to its largest, not to the largest nonprofit gathering in the Bay Area, San Francisco area out in California, uh, and did that really only in a year. And we're going to talk about how that happened. We're going to talk about his work at the NUMI Foundation and at Gender Smart and a number of other things. He's got an active consulting practice helping companies, philanthropists, and nonprofits maximize their impact primarily or at least largely through fundraising. And Darian, I was so glad that we connected uh, because this is this is the stuff that I can tell you right now when we put this out on our email lists as to the topic. Uh, we're gonna, this, I'm anticipating this to be one of our bigger uh, listenerships. So thank you for coming on. Been looking forward to our conversation. Likewise. Thanks for having me, Patrick. I'm just going to turn it to you. I gave, I gave the, uh, the general bio, you know, off the sheet, the stuff you're supposed to say about someone when you're bringing them on, but I want you to get <laughs> us to really know you. Um, tell us about the journey. What is helping people help? Why are you here? How did you get here? Yeah, it's been an interesting journey for sure. And it's had a couple really, uh, poignant chapters, uh, professionally and, and personally, uh, you know, I guess the start is, uh, you know, really, I, I, Started out in college and studying engineering halfway through, decided that wasn't for me and uh, thought I was going to become a teacher in the process, sort of resigned myself to a life of poverty uh, and, uh, you know, grew up. My mom was a teacher uh, for my whole life. And then right before I graduated, I wound up deciding to 
uh, start a company with some of my college buddies. And that turned out to be one of the first digital advertising agencies. And it was wildly successful. We grew that company uh, to almost 400 people in over 20 countries. We had 22 married couples come out of that company. So it was very much a family. Uh, and we sold the company and then the economy collapsed and it really stopped being as much fun. I was a young idealist, fresh out of college, thought we were a family and realized it was a business. And, and so I got disillusioned. I went on what turned out to be my first sabbatical. I've done three, six month sabbaticals and just traveled the world to not so much to come back to something, but to reflect on my purpose and my professional journey and what I wanted to do next. And that was also when September 11th happened. Uh, and so it was a pretty powerful time in my life. And in that process, I, I made a very conscious decision to devote my career and my life to philanthropy and social impact. And that's ultimately the work I've been doing since. Uh, you know, I came back to California and at first I was just organizing fundraisers around different cultural themes. They got bigger and more successful. And then an old buddy of mine from the dot-com days uh, who was on the board of the sort of defunct or dormant Craigslist Foundation said, hey, you're doing all this great work, you know, with nothing behind you, no name. Why don't you breathe some life into this empty vessel? And uh, board hadn't even met in a couple of years. And I did a sort of deep listening tour to find out what was out there, what could the, the Craigslist Foundation really focus on. And ultimately what I landed on is that Craigslist at its core was about people helping people and the foundation uh, should be about helping people help and take that similar sort of egalitarian, not playing favorites, really focusing on the little guy and connecting people to the resources that they need. But instead of a date or an apartment, it was about the resources needed to build a better world. And so that took the form, as you mentioned, of a, a program I launched, a conference called Nonprofit Bootcamp, sort of Lollapalooza for nonprofits. One of the things I really heard loud and clear, two things I actually heard loud and clear as I was talking with a lot of nonprofit leaders before I dove in was number one, it's a hugely fragmented sector. There's, you know, lots of people sort of reinventing the wheel. There's all these amazing capacity building and support resources out there, but you know, there's no sort of front door to the movement uh, for all those resources. And the other thing I heard is that there's a lot of abstract concepts and theories and big ideas out there, uh, but not enough tactical, practical tips and tools. Do this, don't do that. Here's how to. And so, you know, the boot camp was really the answer to that in the form of, like I said, kind of nonprofit Lollapalooza, where we had 100 partner organizations, you know, sort of all under one roof. So you could get connected to all these resources, all these leaders. It grew to be seven educational tracks covering all aspects of starting and running a nonprofit. And it was not just abstract concepts and theories. It was really in the trenches by and for practitioners uh, you know, the how-to practical and tactical insights that on the, you know, that frontline leaders need on a day-to-day -day basis. And so that was really successful. And that was sort of my my first uh, or really my second career, but first in the social impact space. And then over time, I've done a, a couple different things, did a deep dive uh, into uh, the green economy and climate change, did a deep dive into gender inequality uh, and impact investing and more recently really decided uh, on my third, and I kind of knew it would be my last sabbatical in 2015 because I wanted to settle down and have a family, which I now have, and uh, realized I wanted to be a full-time dabbler and sort of sprinkle the fairy dust in lots of places instead of focusing on one cause or organization really uh, help uplift the effectiveness and the capacity of the whole sector. And so now I do that through helping people help. Uh, where I've done some large-scale consulting engagements. I don't have a set bench of consultants. We kind of have a 
unique boutique approach where I'll pull together handpicked teams based on the unique needs of the clients, typically focused on strategic planning, fundraising and boards are really the big areas, uh, but also, you know, nonprofit finance, HR, you name it. Uh, and then I also do a lot of executive coaching uh, where I work directly with mission-led leaders, typically nonprofit CEOs and, and EDs, board chairs, but sometimes with philanthropists, with uh, mission-led CEOs, et cetera, uh, and really help them to do real-time problem solving. I know you mentioned you're uh, you know, a trained coach and I have a bit of a unique approach to coaching. Uh, at least here in California, there's a lot of folks who sort of have this fundamental belief that leaders have all the answers they need inside of them. And your job as a coach is to sort of ask questions and tease that out. Uh, even though you're in South Carolina, I like to joke and say I'm from the East Coast version of coaching where I've been down the road before and and I'm going to tell you it's a much more prescriptive approach of do this, don't do that, here's how to, and you know, here's where the, the pitfalls are that I would encourage you to avoid. And even though they might not always take my advice, my clients never wonder what I'm thinking. Uh, so I'm, I'm pretty forthright about how I would uh, suggest they uh, address their problems and challenges. Well, that's good. That's fair. Uh, we just We just call that consulting. <laughs> but, but, but I get it. Okay. So you, yeah, I mean, you unpacked a lot there. And I think that one of the things our listeners are going to know uh, already be feeling is, wow, this, this guy is experienced on a scale that we're not used to, uh, you know, a small community, local nonprofit, and maybe a, a CEO who has not had that kind of global look and that large look at nonprofits. And yet, I think the issues are very much the same and I'd like to start with unpacking this. And I, I know you do a lot of things, including the executive coaching, but since this is a, since we're focused on fundraising here, you mentioned in uh, your introductory remarks that you wanted to move, you, you knew that where you wanted to go next was the space of philanthropy and social impact. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear your take and maybe we can just have a conversation about the, the, how that reconciles against fundraising. And I'll tell you what I mean by that. You know, I, I grew up in the United Way world. And, mm -hmm. and at the time when I first started with United Way, we were fundraising. In fact, we had the fundraising machine. We had the workplace campaign and it was, we had a monopoly on the workplace. And, yeah, and it was fundraising. And of course, everybody knows the stories of how organizations will lose their relevance if they don't keep up with how things are going. And so now it's less fundraising and more product selling. It's getting people to invest in the product, getting people to invest in the value promise of we're improving early childhood. We're making our community better. We're ending homelessness where you're investing in a result. You're investing in an effort. You're not just giving money to a charity so that you feel good about it. And I've always sort of um, differentiated fundraising slash charity with philanthropy and, mm. social, and social impact. And so in your work with fundraising, how do you align those two? Um, and I may not have explained it enough. It's kind of my own bent and philosophy, but how do you align where fundraising fits into philanthropy and social impact? How are they? Yeah. Related? So first of all, let me just uh, quickly address the, the, you know, comment you made about my background. And I would actually say it's sort of the opposite that 
my tribe and the types of organizations I work with are typically the smaller grassroots organizations okay. that are, you know, zero to half a million dollar budget. I've uh -huh. worked with hundreds of millions of dollars and with the UN and other groups, uh, but that's more the exception versus the rule. So I typically have to translate the stuff upscale versus downscale. Okay. Um, but, you know, the other thing is that I actually think I have a, a fundamentally different viewpoint than you do about the needing to separate or sort of bifurcate fundraising and philanthropy and social impact. Because to me, at least the way I see it, that is actually the single greatest problem and challenge that I see in fundraising is that, you know, I think of, of fundraising and as money as the ball bearings for social change. Like we can't pursue any mission without that. And ultimately, you know, as a passionate fundraiser, someone who does a lot of work building fundraising capacity, in my mind and in my experience, the single greatest challenge and obstacle that we as a sector face is that all too often we have this sort of begging for alms approach to fundraising where we feel like we have to hold out the tin cup and that doesn't feel good. It's not as effective and it doesn't feel good to the donors. And, you know, it, there's a, a really short story that I, I always like to share whenever I talk about fundraising, because to me, it sort of brings this idea home and the alternative, uh, which is that there was a, a young man who'd go on to become a renowned philanthropist and celebrity. But when he was younger, he was the first in his family to go through not only college, but uh, go on and get his master's degree. And he was in this philosophy class with 200 master's and doctorate students sitting around for an hour and a half. And the professor gets up in front of this lecture hall and holds up a glass of water and says, class, is this glass half full or half empty? You know, we've heard this before, but uh, you've got 200 philosophy students talking in circles for an hour and a half. He, they don't solve the age-old riddle. He's super frustrated and walks home uh, kind of despondent. And his grandma, Gertrude, is there waiting for him when he gets back and says, how was class today? Nah, I don't want to talk about it. He blows her off. But she presses him, as grandmas are prone to do, and says, no, really, I want to know. He says, well, it was really frustrating. We had 200 masters and doctorate students sitting in this philosophy class for an hour and a half, and all we did is talk in circles about whether the class is half full or half empty. And his grandmother, with a second grade education, mind you, without missing a beat, says, oh, well, that's easy. It depends on whether you're pouring or drinking. Pouring or drinking. And, and the point here and the connection of fundraising is that when we take this tin cup approach to fundraising, it is rooted in this misconception that we are the drinkers. Because financially speaking, yes, it's true. We rely on the charitable contributions of other people and organizations to do our good work. But the important thing to remember is that nothing could be further from the truth. And in fact, we are not the drinkers, we are the pourers, we are the nurturers of society. And what nonprofits, what this global movement with a capital M does is we connect people and organizations with resources to the change they wanna see in the world. And we are a channel, we are a conduit for that impact. And when you can paint that picture and articulate it in a way that overlaps with the goals of that philanthropist, of that organization, it is organic. It's natural that they want to support you. And I've had donors and funders thank me for the opportunity to help them, you know, build the world that they're dreaming of that they can't build on their own. And to me, that's sacred work. It's a privilege to do it. And we need to hold our heads high when we do this work and think of it less as an ask and more of like an invitation to a party where we're going to throw this party anyway. We're going to climb this hill. Who's with me? And if they're not, that needs to be okay. Otherwise, frankly, you're not doing it right. But when it does align, it's a beautiful thing and it happens naturally and organically. 
Darian, you have got me really backing off of my stance on this. <laughs> I, I just haven't liked the term fundraising for years. I, I don't know why. It's just, a, I don't know. And no, I won't, I won't go much further into it, but you just reminded me that it's not so much whether or not it's fundraising, it's how we do it and it's how we um, frame it. Mm-hmm. The pouring or drinking and uh, the charity. And you, you actually remind me of, um, you know, the, the United Way Worldwide president a number of years ago, um, Brian Gallagher, when he first got on board and he's, he's, uh, he's no longer with the organization, but he was there for 10 or so years. And when he first got on board, I remember him saying, we have to approach our CEOs of our companies differently than we've been doing. Instead of going and saying, Mr. CEO, thank you for your $10,000. Things are worse. We need you to, we're, so we're, we're, we're trying to raise 5% more this year. Would you give 5% more? And he said that the way we need to be asking is Mr. CEO, thank you for the $10,000 you gave us. Here's what we were able to do with it. We have so many more things we believe we can accomplish. So we're doubling our goal this year. And we're hoping you'll double your gift. <laughs> and what a, what a far more inspiring way to frame the way that we it, uh, invite people to be a part of that doubling, as you Absolutely. say. So you brought me right back to that and put me back on track with this fundraising term. I've pushed back against it a lot, but it. thank you for reminding us that it's in the framing and the mindset. Yeah, my pleasure. And I, I think the way that I think of, of what Brian was talking about with that story you just shared and I absolutely agree with the sentiment is in general, nobody likes to be part of a sinking ship, right? We want to be part of a winning team. And listen, there's, you know, there's definitely something to be said for crisis-based fundraising. We have natural disasters, there's other humanitarian crises, and that creates a sense of urgency that can really motivate donors and funders. And in between those crises, we don't need to create more of our own making. And it is more about, you know, thank you so much and because of your support we were able to achieve these types of impact with uh, you know and as we move forward we're going to build on those successes and and impact even more people take our efforts to the next level won't you stand with us as we do this yeah yeah so good um i have a a, a number of things that i thought about I, I wanted to make sure we cover while we're here and sure. uh i'm gonna i'm gonna dive i think right into um, one of the things that I know you spend a lot of time with organizations with, and that is how the heck do I get my board engaged in fundraising? And should I, are boards supposed to raise money or are they just supposed to help us think strategically about fundraising? Um, we're not a working board. We're a policy board, you know, uh, or our board says that they'll do fundraising, but they won't, we can't get them off dead center. Uh, I'm going to just kind of turn this to you and, and give us maybe some of the tenets that you find organizations struggling with that you can help them with the most in terms of what is the board's role and how do we draw that out? Yeah, I, I think that's a great question, Patrick. And, and I feel like there's a, I, I won't just say it depends. What I'll say is there's sort of a life cycle that I've seen across work, many, many organizations and you know what can be very common in the very early days is hey the irs says i need three names on this form so will you join my board and it's friends and family uh you know and you kind of have an in-name only board to get started 
But, you know, and a lot of people don't recognize that over half of the 1.8 million nonprofits in this country have a budget underneath the 100 grand. So they are all volunteer led. Uh, and oftentimes when you're in that state, it's that in name only and it's one person doing everything. Then you kind of punch through and now you have some staff, but you don't have enough staff because the mission is huge. And so you have what you call the working board, which is the same term I would use, where essentially the board is an extension of the staff. Where I find, Patrick, that the real challenge for many of the nonprofits I've worked with uh, is as they punch through that quarter million dollar, half million dollar <clears throat> a year budget mark, where now they're actually decently staffed, never adequately, never, you know, never uh, from an abundant like we have too many people because uh, the mission is always huge and, and bigger than our resources, almost by design. But we have enough to kind of get the job done on a day to day basis. And at that moment, the role of the board ideally evolves from a working board to a strategic, a governing, a fundraising board that ultimately, you know, from my point of view, should be focused on really two major things. One is hiring and firing the ED and setting his or her compensation. And the other is setting the vision and strategy and programmatic priorities for the organization and helping to marshal the resources to execute against that. And the real issue in my experience is how do you sort of level up your board from level two working board to level three strategic and fundraising board? And what I find almost always is the staff just sort of assume that the board should know what's expected of them and they're not doing their job, even though they've never been told what their job is. They've never agreed uh, to roles in fundraising. And if they have, it's just been sort of ad hoc or in an email or a conversation uh, and they're not given the tools and support. Right. And so fundamentally, uh, you know, the first thing to remember is that it, you need to embrace a, a commitment to a graceful transition. What you don't want to do is say, you know, thanks for your help with the working board. Our needs have changed. See ya. And now we're moving on. You want to really frame it as an exciting inflection point. And it's and it's typically helpful to frame it in terms of the board member and thanks and gratitude to them. Thanks so much for your tireless leadership and vision and your commitment to this mission. Because of you and, and the board, we now find ourselves at this really exciting inflection point where we're going to start raising a lot more money. We're going to start you know, impacting a lot more people. Uh, and we couldn't have done it without you. And does it make sense in the context of us taking this step forward into this bold new chapter of impact and development to revisit what is the highest and the best purpose of the board in this new environment? When you frame it that way, they always say yes, and they're always excited and they feel good about it, which is what we want. And then it comes to, uh, you know, diving one level deeper of, okay, well, what does that really mean? And the way I like to frame that is, as we move forward, as we start raising a lot more money, as we start getting celebrities and CEOs or other bigwigs uh, on the board alongside great leaders like you, uh, would it be helpful to be a lot more concrete and explicit about what exactly is expected of each and every board member and how do those pieces fit together? Would it be helpful to take a, a more intentional approach to board recruitment and refinement? Uh, and would it be helpful for us to make infinitely better use of our meeting time? So instead of just giving you a bunch of FYIs and updates, we get those out of the way in the first five or 10 minutes and spend our time in dialogue, problem solving, brainstorming, and moving the mission forward instead of just bringing you up to speed. Once again, when you frame it that way, they always love it and say yes. Uh, Darian, again, so much to unpack there. Can you point us quickly to uh, what, what are the, so 
where can people turn for tools? And I mean, obviously they can go to your website, but what kind of tools or practical things have you either put together or found to help organizations think through this life cycle that you just described? Yeah. So, you know, once they're sort of bought into the why, then that creates a clearing or an opening to talk about the tools and the how to. And, and, you know, what I found is there are a couple tools that are sort of my go-to because I do a ton of work with helping nonprofits better engage their board. And fundamentally, what I found is that when the board has a deeper sense of connection to the mission, instead of just being brought up to speed, so they're effective ambassadors in meetings, but they can actually move the mission forward, they naturally have a deeper sense of connection and ownership. And that organically translates into expanded fundraising engagement. So, you know, what this looks like, tactically speaking, and, you know, once again, I'll, I'll keep kind of drilling down, starting with the big picture. And then even once we get past that level of sort of the overarching framing, I like to start with the why for each of the tools. So, um, you know, the first tool is a board member agreement, which is really designed mm. to create a clear and uniform expectation of board roles and responsibilities. And instead of it being ad hoc or in an email or conversation, it's a very simple contract. It's an agreement. And, you know, usually you'll find something in your bylaws written in legalese, buried, you know, hundreds of pages in that say something nebulous about board roles. But no, let's put it on two, three pieces of paper. It's uniform, meaning if and when adopted, everyone on the board would sign it. And it just lays out in black and white terms, what exactly does the board feel? Because this is not forced upon them. This is a board-led exercise and discussion, as are all these tools. What does the board believe as we move into this exciting next chapter is reasonable to expect of each and every director as it relates to fundraising, participating in meetings, committees, uh, staying connected to the mission, et cetera. Yeah. And I'll tell you what, even if you have that, the time to communicate that is when you're prospecting and recruiting a board member. Because mm-hmm. I see, I, I, I can't tell you how many, you know, phone calls and lunches I've seen or witnessed where the expectation is, Hey, you know, we got a seat open on our board. Your name came up. We meet 12 times a year, but our bylaws only require you to come to seven of those. And, uh, we do have some committees. We'd love it if you would serve on a committee, but if it takes you a year or so to get, you know, set up to speed, we're cool with that. We just really want your name on the board. Um, you know, your company's important to us and we think you'd be a good addition period. And we tell them all the things they don't have to do and how easy it is to serve on this board. And then they come on and And then they don't fundraise and then you get upset with them and then we're like, right. But they do exactly what we said they would need to do. So I, that, you know, you You just affirming that expectation has to be upfront. Yeah. And it has to be explicit in black and white. It's not, you'll make a good faith effort to show up to board meetings. It's you'll show up to 75% of meetings. It's not, you know, (laughs) we hope you're going to fundraise, but it's, everyone's going to make a capacity gift. Everyone's going to make three introductions to potential supporters a year. Everyone's going to view fundraising as critical, right? Things like that. And I've got a a template that I'm happy to email out to your listeners if helpful. Um, So that's really the board member agreement, which is the first step, uh, you know, that that I find is really helpful to level set. What is the job of the board? Right. And and I also find it helpful to frame it as like when we recruit a CEO or celebrity, along with like heads of state like you, like anytime you can treat the board as a head of state and think of it. My mantra is low touch, high value with a minimal amount of time. They should be able to have a transformational impact on the mission. 
So it's incumbent upon us to figure out what that looks like. So that's really step one. Step two, and you touched on this with board recruitment, is the board matrix. And this is a bit more of a common tool. A lot of groups have this in place. I find a lot, all too often, they're too extensive. And in my mind, sort of less is more is uh, the the approach I take with all these tools is never mind the nice to haves, the how we're going to fill out reporting around our board diversity for an application. This is like the critical must have, at least as far as the management tool version. There might be an, another version archived for our census or whatever, but that's actually going to move the work forward is let's come up with the 15 to 20 characteristics that it would be impossible for us to fulfill our potential as an organization unless we have every single one of these represented somewhere on the board over the next decade. And I like to think of it in terms of expertise and capacity. That's where we have, you know, we need someone who knows fundraising and governance and a lawyer and accountant. We're a food security group, so we need that kind of expertise capacity is typically time and money. We want a few people that have more time that can lean in. We want a couple high net worth folks that can write big checks if they're so inclined. So, you know, expertise and capacity, connections is pretty clear, connections to money, to partners, to like-minded organizations, uh, you know, elected officials, and finally diversity, which is not just ethnic and uh, racial diversity. It's about representing the community you serve. And that could look like age, it could look like sexual orientation, gender balance, race and ethnicity. Uh, it could look like lived experience. We're a human service, we're a homeless organization. Maybe we need someone on the board that has lived experience to bring that into the most senior level of leadership. And so, you know, the, the matrix is a really helpful tool, especially if you revisit it anytime someone enters or leads the board. The goal of the matrix is to get the board into consensus around what are our top three recruitment priorities at all points in time. So that to your point, instead of saying, hey, guys, you know, anybody knows someone we should recruit to the board, you get the board to say, we're looking for a Latina accountant with good foundation connections. Does anybody know someone that has passion for our mission? And the likelihood of you finding someone and then being the right candidate goes up exponentially. That's really good. Uh, and I'll share something with you. I, I don't think this is going to be unfamiliar to you, but uh, a lot of times I frame this a little bit from the other end of uh, an, an even bigger picture or top end of the funnel. There's a, a book, uh, early to mid 2000s, um, by Chait and Taylor called Governance as Leadership. And this, oh, yeah. this is this is the the book that talks about you know a board going from fiduciary to to strategic to generative, mm -hmm. and being able to live on all three levels. But the other thing that the book talks about that a lot of people don't talk about, we studied this in our in my doctoral program. This was this book was sort of seminal text for us, um, and and that was the types of board capital. And I have found that it's useful for organizations to make that at least a part of their matrix. And they talk about four kinds of board capital. So before you start thinking about, do we have an attorney, a marketing, a, 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 an accountant, a, you know, a banker, back it up a, a level and ask, do we have the following types of capital on our board? Do we have social capital on our board? People who are connected to other people, who know a lot of people, who can engage people, who have um, not only connections, but relationships and engagements. Second, do we have on our board reputational capital where mm -hmm. maybe it's the company that they represent, but because this person's on the board, somebody goes, wow, that that's saying something. Third, do we have political capital on the board? And that's not necessarily the Republican Democrat kind of political, although that too people who are connected with policymakers and agency heads and legislators, or 
know the political landscape of the community and this banker is not going to talk to that lawyer and to, you know, do they know mm-hmm. the politics? Fourth one that they talk about is intellectual capital. And that really is where all your, do we have an attorney and accountant? <laughs> do we have mm-hmm. people with the, with certain intellectual capital, including the issue that our nonprofit is facing? Do we have someone, the one that understands the early childhood arena or the housing arena? There's a fifth kind of capital that they didn't include in the book, and I added it on there. You didn't mention financial capital. That's right? it. Yeah. yeah. I, I read that and I thought, why are they why <laughs> would they leave out financial capital? Yeah. Because you want people who either have a wherewithal to make significant contribution or they can they can get it. Now, you know. And um, so I, if you take those five kinds of capital across your board matrix along with Mm-hmm. All of the other socioeconomic and demographic factors that you're looking for for that traditional diversity, then you start to really think more strategically about your board. What What do you think of that that high level look at a matrix? I I think it's a helpful framework, um, but as I mentioned in my introductory remarks, what I find that nonprofit leaders you know sort of crave in their day to day work is the tactical, practical tips and tools. So to me, it's about how to operationalize that framework. And so, yes, that reputational capital is critical. And like, let's put it on the matrix as, you know, we need someone with a a good reputation in academia, or we need someone with financial capital or with, uh, you know, we didn't talk about time as a type of capital. Um, And I also would think of lived experience as a type of sort of strategic capital. Yeah, and that's a growing ivory tower. But the point is sort of coming up like, operationalizing and and being more specific about what do these kinds of capital look like to our organization so that they fit into one of these three dimensions. I love the lived experience as a form of capital because that absolutely experiential capital, you know, the, the one just really quick uh, factoid or or statistic on that front is only 8% of the 1.8 million nonprofits in this country have a board member under the age of 50. And how many youth services organizations do you know out there, right? Mm-hmm. So there's just a mismatch with yeah. uh, with not representing the community we serve. And I think that that is critical. And to me, that is the diversity lens uh, through which I, I look at the board matrix. Mm. And then, Patrick, the, the final tool I wanted to mention briefly that speaks directly to this idea of, you know, how do we transform our board meetings? Because I've been to lots of board meetings. What I find in 80 to 90% of them is 80 to 90% of the time is spent in monologue. The staff has spent hours and hours preparing PowerPoints. And if you look at the agenda, almost every item has the word report or update in it. And we spend our whole time bringing this incredible group of board members that we bring together, talk about, you know, capital from a standpoint of that time. And all we're doing is updating them on our progress and impact, answering a few clarifying questions and sending them home. But we're not moving the mission forward. We haven't answered any questions that I as the staff have before the meeting. And when you turn that on its head, uh, and the tool to achieve that is typically called a consent agenda or a docket agenda, and it's actually a three-part tool, but board members absolutely love this tool. EDs love this tool. It is the most transformational tool I've put into practice as an ED, a board chair, a board member, and a consultant. And it's sort of this three-part sandwich that is designed to streamline all of those updates. And if you ever saw the matrix and how he learns Kung Fu in like five seconds, it gets all of your FYIs and updates out of the way in the first five to 10 minutes of the board meeting. And the way this looks tactically speaking is 
the front page of the sort of integrated PDF that uh, someone's going to get, a board member's going to get along with the agenda uh, a week before the board meeting, hopefully. The first page is an organizational dashboard, just a one-page heads-up display, just like when you sit in your car, you know if it's going to run out of gas or, you know, overheat. You know, show me about a dozen metrics or key performance indicators, each of which has a green, yellow, or red, you know, flag right next to it, not tagged to annual targets, although those are there for reference, tagged to year-to-date targets. Don't tell me we're at 13% of our revenue goal. Tell me we're at 102% of where we thought we'd be at this point in time, right? And and at a glance, that's going to tell your board how we're doing, not just operationally and financially, but programmatically as it relates to our impact targets. We're mission-led groups. That has to be front and center. The meat of the sandwich uh, is the executive summaries. And that's where anything, with very few exceptions, that had the word reporter update in the title, it gets put in writing. And the key is it's limited to no more than two paragraphs each. So this is where we talk about treating your board like heads of state and giving them a dossier where it's like, okay, fundraising update, financial update, facilities update, board recruitment update, program one update, whatever it might be, any FYIs, put them in writing, keep them to two paragraphs, Cliff Notes version, just tell them what they need to know. Um, and don't just tell them the what, tell them the so what. Don't just tell them that, you know, we're underperforming on revenue, tell them why and is it a concern and what are we doing about it, right? So that's the meat of the sandwich. And then finally, to kind of keep the tool familiar, uh, you know, is that it includes the, the minutes from the previous meeting, but they're streamlined minutes. And if for whatever reason you want to keep, you know, 10 pages of minutes with he said, she said, and what time we adjourned and who was present, fine, put those in a Dropbox and archive them for you know, for those purposes, again, I'm concerned with management tools. It's two to three pages, and there's only three things that we're focused on in these streamlined minutes. One is any key takeaways or insights that were unearthed and discussed in the meeting. Two is any votes that were taken. I like to put them in bold italics so they jump off the page. And three, and most critically, and this is what will become increasingly important as you move forward and use the tool, is any action items or commitments that were shared. And each person or group that made any kind of commitment gets a different highlighter color. So I can see that I'm purple, green, and red because I'm Darian and I committed to sending out the minutes next week. I'm on the finance committee and we committed to sending out updated financials by the end of the month. And I'm a board member at large and everyone on the board agreed to make three calls to invite people to our gala next month or whatever it might be. But that creates a gentle form of accountability uh, so that people remember what their homework is. And if they see that before the next meeting, you know, it's a reminder for them to say, oh, I got to I got to make that call or send out those financials. Uh, so really, really helpful. Uh, and this is also where fundraising is actually explicitly taken on is in the, the slate of these three tools, um, you know, especially in the board member agreement where, you know, historically, there's a lot of folks doing give or get targets that I find to be fundamentally wrongheaded. Uh, but we're being upfront and explicit in a board-led discussion about board fundraising responsibilities. I love it. And um, I've been a fan of the consent agenda for years. And here's here's my caveat to the consent agenda. There's a second half to this, right? Mm. So the consent agenda basically removes a part of your bo your typical board agenda in meeting. You still have to replace that old design with a new one. 
So now with the consent agenda, how are you spending your time in your board meetings? Um, I did some research and you've seen research by board source and others mm-hmm. who, who in, 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 uh, the, the studies that I've seen and even conducted one of them, um, less than half of a board's time on the average is spent at what again, Chate and Taylor would call the strategic and generative levels. Mm-hmm. They're talking about why we spent more on copy paper this month than we did last month. They're, you know, because they, they think they're supposed to ask questions about the budget. And, and so we're, they're spending their time there, which by the way, average number of board meetings a year is six average amount of time of meeting time, not including meals is an hour. So we're mm-hmm. talking about if less than, so that's six hours a year. And if less than half of that, less than three hours a year that the governing body of the organization is spending on strategy and generative thinking because they're stuck on these reports and things. So you still have to replace the old design with the new one. And the way that I always like to say it is absolutely create an agenda of objectives, not topics. You know, we have these bullet points, you know, the finance, you know, the, 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 the golf tournament is just a bullet just says the golf tournament as if the objective is to talk about something. Oh, we, we need to talk about mm-hmm. the golf tournament. Okay, let's talk about it. Good, we achieved it. We talked about the golf tournament. But what is the what do you want to walk out of the board meeting having achieved is a different Absolutely. question. So I love the consent agenda, but I still know a lot of organizations who use one and then come right back to their board meeting and still behave the same way with, with more reports, yeah, I mean, other reports. I, I, <laughs> First of all, I think, you know, 50% is being really generous. In my experience, it's more like 20% uh, with typical nonprofits. Well, my study said less than 50. So what they said was, yeah, that less than 50. So we don't know how much less in that particular study, but we know it's less than three hours a year. And, and again, I, like, I think that's, that's being generous, even at that number, you know, I, I think part of it, there's sort of two key things to keep in mind. One is how that tool is adopted and implemented. And in my opinion, it should be the standing first order of business at all meetings, possibly with the exception of a mission moment where you have Mm -hmm. a client, one of the people that you've changed their lives, get them in front of the board and get them out of the ivory tower and let them feel the pulse of the impact and the mission in action. Uh, You know, but notwithstanding that, it's, you know, actually as funny as it sounds like handing out the hard copies of the consent agenda Hopefully people have read them and done their homework, but I don't actually expect or require that they do because the first five minutes of the meeting is spent in silence as people read or hopefully reread the packet. Then you answer any clarifying questions. So that's the whole, like, I see we spent, you know, $5 more on this or that. Um, But those are really quick clarifying questions. And then once that gets voted in, like you'd normally approve the minutes, now that matrix upload where they've learned their Kung Fu for the board is complete. And now to your point, we've got time for all of these key objectives, these generative discussions. And, you know, the main criteria in my perspective is that they should be dialogue driven. Uh, And it is, like I said, it's about answering the questions that the staff don't have uh, the answers to before the meeting. So to your point, maybe it's, hey, guys, we have this golf tournament coming up. You know, we would love your thoughts on how to raise more money through this platform. Or does anybody know any uh, strategic partners or in-kind providers that could lower our expenses? We don't know the answers, but it's that brainstorming, you know, problem solving. We're at a fork in the road. Should we go left or right? Here are the pros and cons. What do you think? Yeah, well said. Yeah. and, And tying it back to fundraising, 
you know, the, one of the smartest things I've ever heard about fundraising is that if you want money, ask for advice. If you want advice, ask for money. And when you do that with your board, again, they have a much deeper sense of connection to the cause and the mission, and it naturally translates into expanded fundraising. That's good. I'm picking up so many things to take and plagiarize when I walk out of this uh, episode. Um, All open license. <laughs> yeah. Well, so is this. I, I'll tell you a quick story, and then we'll move on from the board stuff here. I've got three other sure. areas that I want to uh, explore with you just a little bit before we wrap up. I was at, um, I tell this story a lot. In fact, I, I, I bring this to boards all the time. Um, when I was at what my good friend calls baby CEO school at United way years ago, um, we got asked a question by one of the facilitators. He said, okay, case scenario here. You have a small, not you have the Acme nonprofit organization and the organization's a fairly small one, but it does have a staff, a small staff. You have an executive director slash CEO, you have a development director, you have an administrative director, and you have a program director, okay? Who is ultimately responsible for ensuring that the organization has the resources it needs to accomplish its mission? And that was the question we were asked. And I, I know you know the answer to this. It tripped us up a little bit because we were you know, it was kind of a trick question because the right answer is not one of the options. Mm -hmm. The answer is the board is ultimately responsible for ensuring that the organization has the resources it needs to accomplish its mission. And um, yes, you have a staff who has responsibilities in that, but the accountability falls on the chief steward or, or the board. And that is always a big eye opener for boards because they go, well, it's the development director because that's why you have a develop. No, it's always the CEO. The buck stops at the CEO. Nobody wants to say, no, the governing body of the organization is ultimately, ultimately accountable for ensuring in a number of different ways that the organization has the resources it needs to accomplish its mission. Um, you're free to disagree with it if you have a different take on it. Because <laughs> I, I, I do. There's always I mean, there's, other angles on it. Yeah, there's there's two things I would share. So number one is I agree with you from sort of like what the textbooks say it's supposed to be, but in my experience working with groups, you know, on the front lines and grassroots organizations in particular, they're largely staff led. Again, a lot of my work is helping get the board more engaged. But ultimately, the fundraising responsibility tends to lie with the staff and with the executive director, who could be supported by a director of development or other staffers. But, you know, they're the sort of lifeblood that is driving the organization, making sure it hits its numbers, you know, and ensuring that the board has the resources it needs to contribute to achieving those targets. So, you know, I, I, in my mind, it's like sort of the ED is the is the tip of the spear from a standpoint of that responsibility and maybe to a lesser extent the accountability, but usually it's, you know, the ED is really the driving force. What I also think is an interesting question though, because in that ACME example, that's a pretty top heavy four person organization where everyone's got a director title. You know, what the experience that I've come into contact with many times is a relatively small organization. Maybe it's, you know, the, the three person organization that doesn't have any dedicated development staff. And they come to me and sort of start talking to me about, we really need a director of development. And what I find 80% of the time with, especially with small to mid organizations, uh, you know, under a couple million bucks of revenue, let's say, 
is that they are almost always better served starting out with the bottom of the pyramid, starting out with junior level support staff than senior level staff. And I've gone through this as an ED myself when I was running Craigslist Foundation, where I was out there raising all the money myself. We finally got to a point where we could start to staff up. At first, I talked with this nice, you know, high-powered consultant that I thought I was going to do a brain dump. She was going to create some materials I would bless, and then she would disappear, reappear with big bags of money and set them on my desk, just like we think our board's going to do. Didn't happen. Then I hired a director of development. Similar expectations also didn't happen. And sometimes, uh, you know, I think it's 20 or 30 percent that director development, which is more expensive and much harder to find, will pan out. But there's a, a much bigger variation there, as opposed to what ultimately worked best for me and what I've seen work for many of my clients is hiring a development coordinator, development manager who wasn't there to drive fundraising. She was there to backfill me. And ultimately, uh, you know, the executive director or the founder is typically one of the best people to be the frontline fundraiser because they have the passion, they have the vision, they have the historic context, and they have a lot of the relationships. Yep. And so rather than trying to outsource or offload fundraising, she was able to make sure I was calling and thanking the people I needed to call, setting me up to have the meetings, drafting my emails and proposals, and taking the stuff off my plate uh, that a junior person or increasingly artificial intelligence technology can mm -hmm. do for us that allows us to focus more of our sort of special sauce, those, you know, relationships that we build, which is really where the big bucks get raised. Do you subscribe to um, the notion that the CEO is really the CDO? The chief uh, development I officer? I think it depends. Or a, um, I've heard it also said the glorified chief development officer. Yeah, I mean, I, I really think it depends. I actually, you know, I had an epiphany that led to my departure from Craigslist Foundation about the fundamental nature of leadership. And what I recognized, uh, it was actually this time of year. Um, and uh, I was doing this, uh, it's actually a Jewish tradition called Tashlich, which comes around the new year, where you walk down to a body of water and sprinkle some some bread in the water and, and as we were walking down to the beach, you know, that we were in this silent meditation thinking about what we wanted to leave behind in the previous year. And somehow I started thinking about leadership and I had this really visceral image of a weightlifter come to me. And, you know, those sort of Olympic weightlifters, you know, with, with the huge weights. And what I recognized is that in our culture, we think of leadership in very monolithic terms where sort of over time and as you get more experience, you become a better leader. And what I recognize in this moment is that there's actually different kinds of leadership. And there's the leadership that you use to do the heavy lifting, to get that weight off the ground, the sort of entrepreneurial muscles. Uh, and then there's the leadership that's up here when you're sort of maintaining that weight. And that's the managerial muscles. And what came to me in that moment was you know, I'm sort of naturally gifted, more experienced. I have a natural sort of connection to the the heavy lifting, the entrepreneurial muscle set. Uh, and I'm, I'm great at that stuff. That ties into fundraising and ties into vision and partnerships and a lot of the external stuff. But, you know, I'm not nearly as talented and gifted up here. I'm not as experienced. It doesn't come naturally. It's sort of the opposite. And what I recognize in that moment is uh, even though I'm gifted with the heavy lifting, I was living uh, on the managerial level, now that the organization had evolved, uh, thanks to, you know, all of our work and, and my contribution, but also the board and the staff, 
And that's why I was struggling as I was trying to prove to myself that I could be a great leader by being a great manager. And that wasn't where my skill sets lied. And so, you know, now that I've had the the experience of working with hundreds of different nonprofits, I've seen some uh, some leaders that are the visionary, external fundraiser, you know, natural extrovert and relationship builder, com- comfortable thinking extemporaneously and you know, and then I've seen them the managerial, the the process positive types I've heard them called. And every once in a while you get someone who's at the middle of the Venn diagram that can do it all. And those are gems. Uh, I'm not one of those, right? I've had to learn a lot of the managerial skills that I've developed over time. Uh, so I, I think the answer to your question is it really depends. And as long as that function, and this is where the board can be helpful, as long as that function is addressed and and held somewhere so that it is achieved and it is centered and presenced in the work of the organization, that's what matters, whether it's the board, whether it's the staff, whether it's the CEO. But what you can't do is just sort of expect you know, one person to to thrive in all different aspects of leadership if that's not, you know, their their personality. Yeah. I what one of the things I like about what everything you're saying is the nuances and the the flexibility. There's not a one size fits all. There's not a single answer to these things. You know, there's a I'm hearing you say there's a it depends on a lot. It depends on the size and scale of the organization, the the point in the life cycle of the organization, the kind of leader it has, the the appetite that the board has for I mean, there's a million different layers that come into this. And sometimes we we approach these problems and go, what's the right answer? And and it's well, what's the what's an what is an effective answer for you is um yeah. is really where it you know. I, I agree that, you know, every organization is different and unique. I have also over the last 25 years, you know, identified one or two things that I think are sort of almost always true, especially as it relates to fundraising. You know, I talked about that. If you want money, ask for advice thing before um, we talked about the notion of, you know, being re- recognizing we are the poorers and not the drinkers. Um, you know, the critical importance of recognizing it's our responsibility to engage our board in fundraising. But one of the other things I'd like to share is I do feel like there's a bit of a fork in the road between institutional giving and individual fundraising. Uh, and I've, I've definitely had experience with both and have helped a lot of groups with both and done both. And in my experience, the the, the individuals, the major gifts, the grassroots donations, in most cases, that's largely relationship driven and it's emotionally driven, right? So it's about the personal connection I gave because my buddy or my, you know, uh, relative asked me to, or I gave because I had a personal connection to that cause. You told me a story that, you know, inspired me and I wanted to join you and support your work. The institutional giving, I think we all too often assume that the same thing applies And there is some overlap. Relationships play a huge role. Uh, Being able to really clearly convey your work and your impact is also critical. But in my experience, the the fundamental sort of key determinant of institutional fundraising success is in the for-profit world, it's thought of as consultative selling. You know, in fundraising, it's in my mind, it's really about understanding the goals, the objectives, the metrics and indicators that that person and that organization which they represent are looking to achieve. 
Typically in institutional fundraising, you're not talking to the CEO, you're talking to a program officer if you're lucky, and that person has a job, they've got a board to report to, a committee that has to approve the grants. And so your job is to figure out what is their job and how can I help them view funding us as helpful to their goals? And so it's it's a bit more of framing it in the context of what they care about and specifically what their agenda is, if you will. And when you can align those interests, uh, then the fundraising happens much more naturally. Yeah, uh, that resonates with me in uh, largely because of my time with the United Way. I mean, United Way as a movement had to yeah. learn, in, in many cases the hard way, that we had institutional relationships at the expense of individual relationships within those institutions. And when the workplace became the workforce, <laughs> Um, and not as much place-based and you know, all the era of downsizing and all that, those people go on somewhere and we don't know who they are. We'd collect, you know, pledge form, you know, a thousand pledge forms from a manufa manufacturing plant and the, the, the human resources director would collect the pledge forms, put them in, tell us how many donors there were and what they are, but wouldn't always share with us who those donors were. So we never had the relationship with mm -hmm. the individuals. We had the relationship with the institution and furthermore, it was a transactional relationship more than an engagement relationship. And of course, you know, many United ways have, have figured that out and are doing a great job. One of the, um, um, dilemmas, dichotomies, whatever you want to call it, that I hear a lot from organizations in fundraising is what's the optimal balance between events, fundraising and relationship based fundraising you know, the, and, and I know they overlap, they can, or they should, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of organizations who the gala, the golf tournament, the, you know, the run for the cure mm -hmm. versus really finding, you know, uh, um, a few high wealth donors or institutions who have a CSR platform that aligns with what you're doing. And uh, what, what's your experience on that? Are you finding, um, are you finding some kind of optimal balance between events and, and relationships? I'm, I'm, I'm working with some organizations that are trying to shift actually from heavy events to more of the relationship side. What's your take? Yeah. I mean, I think that's incredibly common nowadays because getting people together physically has, has changed fundamentally, yeah. you know, since the pandemic, uh, you know, I think connecting the dots to that, that, uh, discussion we just had about sort of what is true about fundraising in almost all cases. Uh, when I went through the process of writing the nonprofit fundraising 101 book, and I interviewed about 50 of the top fundraising experts in the field uh, across every aspect of fundraising you can imagine, uh, you know, it's interesting because there's one thing that I heard in literally every interview, whether it related to direct mail or online giving or major gifts or grassroots or uh, whatever it might be. And it was that nobody wants to be treated like an ATM. And I think to your point about transactional versus relationship fundraising, one of the things that is really hard for under-resourced organizations to do is to reach out when they don't need funds. And when they're just saying thank you or building the and strengthening that relationship. Uh, one of the stats that I was kind of bowled over when I first heard from Bloomerang was that if a donor, a first time donor gets a thank you call from a board member within two days, within 48 hours of their first gift, their lifetime value to that nonprofit goes up by 50%. I believe that. 
And, you know, in the business world, we say it's seven times more expensive to acquire a new customer than to maintain one. I've heard in the nonprofit world, it's 11 times as expensive. And so, you know, it's that gold standard of that you you should map out seven touch points between asks. Mm That's a that's a challenge for most of the groups I work with. Yep. But, you know, can you pick out the top five percent of your donors and add a little one liner to the newsletter when you forward it to them or send them an impact update and, you know, make a little quarterly reminder to yourself to touch base with at least a couple of the most important folks. And again, here's where junior staff and AI can be helpful down the road. You know, the, the events question that you're bringing up is really interesting because, you know, we already started to see the role of online auctions and sort of hybrid events. And now it's sort of the future of work arguably being expedited by 10 or 15 years because of COVID. Uh, you know, there's a lot less of a focus on events. I'm also a conference organizer and I, I see the transformational potential of getting a community together in person and really reaching people on a deeper emotional level. Um, and so I, I think, you know, uh, it, it does depend in terms of that ratio because it really depends on is it a relationship or is it a transaction? If you're only getting in touch when you're asking them for money and you just asked them two months ago and now you're going to ask them to, you know, buy a ticket to your gala, doesn't really feel great. You know, if you have a relationship and you're in touch and only 12% of your communications are leading with an ask, then it's okay to sort of, you know, pepper in some updates about our crowdfunder or our run, walk, ride or a gala or whatever it might be. Uh, and it can offer a powerful point of connection. One of the things that tends to make crowdfunding campaigns and run, walk, rides most successful, for example, is, uh, you know, you, you never want to have an empty tip jar. Like there's been a lot of research done. And if you walk into a cafe, you'll never see an empty tip jar because when it's empty, nobody gives. And so you always want to launch a campaign with at least 25, 30% of that thermometer filled. United Way is the one that wrote the book on this, right? And so how do you do that? Well, you start with your board. You start with some of your biggest donors. And that ask should actually feel like an invitation to sit at the, the table of honor. You know, as one of our most loyal supporters, we wanted to let you know that thanks in part to your contributions, we're moving our work forward. We're going to launch this ambitious campaign uh, to, uh, you know, impact 10,000 more youth. Uh, And we've heard that the campaign is much more likely to be successful if we lead off with 30% in the tip jar. Would you consider an initial gift before we take the campaign public? Oh, thank you for asking. I'd love to sit at that table. Right. Like that's where fundraising and relationship building can tie hand in hand. Ah, man, that's really good. I want to go back to something, a more simple, practical thing you said a while ago about a board member thanking a donor. So there is, you know, if you're with an organization that is struggling getting your board engaged in fundraising, there's an easy little runway right there. It's easy. There's no pressure. We're not asking you to cold call, but it is a fundraising role to thank somebody for their donation. And that's something a board member can do. And again, feel very special that they were asked to make that. Thank you. So I, I love that particular practical tip. Um, yeah. And, and what's interesting is if you dig into uh, board members who sort of resist fundraising, hmm. what I almost always hear is I don't like fundraising. I don't like to ask people for money. Right. I don't want to ask people for money. That is almost always the reservation that that directors have. And to your point, that is rooted in a misconception that fundraising is all about the ask. And I like to joke and say that's like saying dating is all about the proposal for marriage. 
there's a lot of work that leads up to that and there's a lot of work that comes yeah. after it. And what I find to be most helpful to sort of get board members to sort of support fundraising is to help them recognize that it is more about a process, more about a relationship. And every board member must view fundraising as a critical role and must support it in some way. I like to be explicit in that board member agreement and say, if you're not comfortable asking for money, we won't force you to do that. It's not going to be effective. It's not going to build a relationship. So staff or someone else on the board can do that. I also like to lay out the expectations around, you know, the, the personal capacity gift uh, and opening up doors, what's historically bundled together as a give or get that undermines uh, diversity. Um, you know, but the other thing is, uh, aside from having that sort of rapid response donor acknowledgement committee in that 48 hours I just talked about, you can at any point in time organize a donor thankathon. And you can, you know, invite the board over to the office, get some pizza, give them a little call script, and just have them call all or at least your top donors and just say, hey, Bob, this is Darian from uh, the from NUMI Foundation. I'm one of the board members here. I saw that you gave 200 bucks for our annual campaign last year and just wanted to let you know that thanks to your support, we were able to feed 6,000 yeah. families during COVID, do this and that. And we just wanted to say thank you for that support. Click. That's good. There's no ask. There's no invite. And how does the board member feel? More connected. How does the donor feel? More connected. What's going to happen next time? It's you know time for an annual campaign or an appeal. That donor's probably much more likely to give and give more. And then when you follow back with the board member and say, hey, Darian, thanks for calling Bob. I don't know if you remember, but he gave 200 bucks last year. He just wrote us a check for two grand. And now that board member's feeling like, hey, this fundraising thing's not so hard mm, after all. That's so right? good. So good. So good. Um we don't have time to unpack this one a lot, but I'd like maybe a tenant or two. Donor fatigue, community fundraising fatigue. We'll even put it that way in a bigger sense. Um, you know, I hear this all the time. How do you stand out? What, what in your mind are one or two like things that over and over you see that the ones that stand out, the ones that make it past the noise, what are they doing differently? I think the two things I would say is number one is is investing in those relationships, which we've already talked about extensively. The other thing is, and here's where technology and, and social media can be powerful, is recognizing that, uh, you know, you don't want to be the person in the cocktail party that's only talking about themselves and sucking up all the air in the room. And especially as it relates to social media, I launched, uh, you know, the, the first conference series to voted to social media for social good. And a lot of nonprofits were trying to figure out, you know, how do I fundraise through Facebook or Instagram or whatever it might be? And what the research shows is if you're just looking at it from a pure ROI standpoint, it's not a great investment of resources. Where you can actually use social media as a very effective fundraising tool is by first and foremost thinking of it as a thought leadership tool. And what that looks like is at least half of your post to any social media platform should not be about yourself, your impact, your needs, your, you know, the fact that you're hiring, the new report you just put out. They should be, you know, about the issues that you represent. If you're a breast cancer organization, share new research or reports or articles or events other groups in the space are putting out and be the one that is pitching that big tent. And then less than half of the time, talk about yourself, a portion of which is fundraising appeals. But that way, you are establishing yourself as a leader in the field. And when it comes time, you know, 30% of all giving happens the last month of the year, a third of which happens the last three days of the year. 
And people are, have their checkbooks and they're thinking about, oh, who do I want to write a check to in the breast cancer space? Oh, those guys who are always putting out really good content and educating me. That's where the real fundraising opportunity happens through social media. Darian, I want to thank you for all the practical tips. And I mean, this is, people would pay for this as a webinar this or, or a conference breakout. This, this is the stuff I think people need is, you know, part of what you're sharing is ideas. And I'm sure you have a billion of them. And, but part of what you're sharing and more of what you're sharing is th th this is not complicated. You know, it's actually pretty simple when you break it down. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm just sort of sensing that as, as I listen to you. And I, I think that should give our listeners and the organizations out there struggling with this whole fundraising piece, you know, just get down to some, you, what you're talking about here, are really some of the basics. I think, I think over the years we, we maybe have lost just some of the basics, the things that make that work. And so much of it is related to sales. The same thing that, you know, corporate sales stuff, some of the principles are the same, but I really appreciate all, all of the practical tips um, that you're providing on this too. I think this is one of those that, you know, I'm going to have to put in my, my email when I'm promoting this podcast for people to, you know, get up, get a pen and paper as they listen to this one. Cause they're going to want to take notes. Um, there are two questions I like to ask all my guests before we wrap up, uh, Darian. One sure. is I love stories, uh, from people, successful people like you. Um, I'd love to hear the stories of <clears throat> people who have impacted them. And I always hear these unique ways, um, that people have impacted their view on leadership as a leader and a, and a coach to leaders and a, and a helper to leaders. Uh, who's someone that just comes to your mind as someone who had a great impact on your philosophy of leadership or your, your ethic or your approach to leadership? Who is that and why? You know, when I think about my sort of, uh, especially in the fundraising space, my mentors and one of my sheroes, I, I think uh, a lot about Kay Sprinkle Grace. And I don't know if you've ever had her on your podcast, but she is uh, incredible. She's an author, um, amazing public speaker. And, you know, she's someone that has clearly committed her life to this line of work. She's inspired so many other sort of emerging leaders, especially as it relates to fundraising. She's the voice in my head as I think not only about the critical importance of relationships versus transactional fundraising, you know, the critical importance of not expecting every board member to make an ask. She has her three A's approach, but she's also, you know, got these little amazing poignant things like people don't give to you, they give through you. You're not raising money for yourself or even your organization. You're raising money for the clients that you serve. They give to you not because you have needs, but because you meet needs. And those kinds of little nuggets are things that I really keep in my back pocket. And the fact that she's, you know, just brings such passion and vision to this work and unwavering commitment after so many years, uh, you know, is, is a big part of that as well. Love it. Love it. Um, I have to look into, uh, I have to look into her work. Last question. If you had a megaphone on top of a mountain and all the leaders, people who consider themselves leaders are on the ground beneath you and you've got 20 seconds to give them the most important message for leaders to hold on to the, the thing that you believe is the, you know, the Darian tenet of leadership, what would that be? Seek first to collaborate and only then to lead. 
And I saw, I got to see President, former President Clinton speak once. He shared that. And I think in the nonprofit sector, uh, you know, all too often we, you know, we are passionate people. We're compassionate people. We want to run out and, and impact a cause. And far too often we don't take the time to really survey the landscape, see who else is out there, how we can support their efforts. And only after we've done that, if we've identified a unique path and a gap that needs to be filled, should we be looking to create something new, right? Wow. How can we really support one another? Because ultimately the rope is stronger than the threat. Uh, and that's the, the fundamental tenet of, of my work. Um, you know, I'm glad that this was practical and helpful for me. Anytime I'm talking to a group, uh, you know, I like to say that if they leave my comments inspired, that's great, but it means I haven't done my job. My job is to inspire people to action and really to give them tactical, practical tips and tools. So if they want to come to the site, I'm happy to, uh, you know, not only offer up templates for those board tools I mentioned, but as a standing offer, anytime I give a keynote or write a book or, or speak on a podcast like this, I always offer up a free pro bono coaching session and connect with folks for 15, 20 minutes to find out about their specific challenges and connect them to some resources and contacts. So I'm very much at the, at the service of your listeners. And I just want to thank them as I wrap up. Uh, thank them not only on behalf of myself and on behalf of the podcast, but thank them on behalf of the thousands of people that they collectively serve and impact every day. Man, such good stuff. Again, thanks so much. And by the way, helpingpeoplehelp.com is the site. So if you want to get in touch with Darian, and I highly recommend it, helpingpeoplehelp.com will get you there. And if you want to go to Amazon and check out, you know, one of the things that, that Darian may be best known for is uh, his writing, uh, Nonprofit Fundraising 101 and Nonprofit Management 101. Uh, both of those on Amazon, both chock full of uh, tenets and foundations and principles just like this. So uh, Darian, thanks again. I hope I hope our listeners reach out to you and certainly check out your stuff. Great offer on the pro bono coaching session. And uh, thanks for everything you're doing. That's you, it Patrick. for this episode, folks. Lead on. Lead on.